Welcome, comrades, to the post-capital. I'm your host, Miguel, allegedly, and this will be your new home for a post-capitalist analysis of the news and a call for abolition in our times. Um, we'll go ahead and begin by addressing the fact that this is a different podcast than I normally do. That's because I want to go ahead and announce that Antifa News is dead. It's dead. It's gone. It's died. You can bury it. No. Um, you know, we'll just, we'll make it pretty simple. No need to be super melodramatic about it. But after September 4th, 2021, people will remember that day. It'll live in infamy in my head forever. But essentially, Tiny Tosa, you know, leader of the of the Proud Boys in the Oregon area, he got his first shot at an anti-vaccine rally. Oh my God, I love when people put it that way. But, you know, let's be honest, he got shot in self-defense after he attacked somebody with a baseball bat. Regardless, Tiny. Tiny's... I don't know how people chose to blow it out of proportion. But essentially, after Tiny got shot, there were so many calls for my murder and execution as a result of this. People trying to claim that it was me that had fired the weapon, that it was me that... There were just so many claims out there, completely false claims. Claims that there were a lot of people who you know were marginally connected to me that reached out and they were like, hey... Uh, this is pretty concerning. Why does everybody want to kill you? So essentially, you know, this is a little bit of an explanation for the social media break that I took. And I know that's annoying, you know, people being like, I'm going to take a social media break. And then they're back in like two, three weeks. It was three weeks to, it's actually a month for me. So whatever. But still, you know, it, it does get, does get annoying. But essentially I'm back in a very different way. And that's kind of the focus of the post capital. Uh, the post-capital, we're going to be, like I said, doing a post-capitalist analysis of uh, headlines, the news, of theory, discussion, all these things. It's a very, and, and specifically, we're very much focused on the anarchist take to things. But at the end of the day, I also want to announce that this podcast isn't it either. You know, be stay tuned, enjoy the podcast, but eventually we'll be opening up a website where we're going to start publishing journalism that is is leftist. It's, uh, you know, human rights based. That's anarchists that, uh, you know, genuinely discusses real things. Because, uh, you know, I've, I've been very grateful for this social media slash really mental health break. That was like the biggest thing that, that I needed for a long time. And with this mental health break, I've taken the opportunity to read a lot of books that, you know, I, you know, I'll plug the books through, you know, there's some that pertain to this podcast, this, uh, very specific episode that, you know, will explain itself in a moment and particularly relates to even what we're talking about now. But as a part of that, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to read a lot of these books. And one thing that I thought about relating specifically to Antifa News, Antifa News was a great project. You know, there were a lot of people that enjoyed the journalism, enjoyed what it was doing, enjoyed the change that we were making. I would go, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and start by addressing some of the change we made. Uh, first of all, we reported on the fact that Logan Schindelman went missing. He was a um, black and Arabic uh, and white kid. Uh, but basically because of him being a person of color, Thurston County, after he went missing, refused to actually do the real, the real work of searching for him. And this was mostly the fault of a detective, Frank Frawley. Now, a little bit of a victory here. Detective Frank Frawley has been demoted 
demoted because of the multiple calls that they got to Thurston County about his extreme racism. And in fact, he's been demoted now to the point that he's a resource officer at Rainier High School. So, you know, there's one victory. There's a lot of victories that we can celebrate through Antifa News. I got Ed Troyer pissed off. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Antifa. You know, I, I will remain an anti-fascist at heart, but what I've recognized is that, you know, we're at a very prime point. I'll talk about this more in depth in the future, but I believe we're at a prime point where, you know, in the Weimar Republic, pre-Nazi Germany, there was a moment where the militant opposition to the Nazis, it failed. It, it failed spectacularly due to leftist infighting, due to people genuinely starting to accept some of the things that they were saying, some of the rallies they were holding. And as a part of that, I believe, you know, we're, we're near that point. Antifa has been villainized as much as the right wing has. Its uh, specific work is often said to be just as bad as the Nazis by, uh, you know, neocons and moderate liberals and you know, boring people. And although I don't, you know, believe in that equivalency at all, I would never defend that, and I will always be on the side of the anti-fascists. I've recognized that, you know, we have a very, uh, very good thing that we can do with our work, with our, with my journalism, with, uh, you know, the person. Uh, obviously, I want to go ahead and announce too that uh, I'm not going to be the only person hosting this podcast at all. You know, <laughs> I'll definitely introduce the co-host next week. It's just uh, we thought we'd go ahead and get started with giving you something to listen to. But uh, basically, it's the notion that there are bigger fish to fry than the bash. You know, as important as it is to call out and fight your local fascist, there are small communities and, and people online who are anonymous that can do this work a lot more effectively than somebody who's going to be targeted by the far right. And as a part of that, I, I've uh, decided that, you know, this work, it's its something I need to step away from for a bit. And I'd rather focus on what the post-capital is going to be all about, which I hope everybody will enjoy. The post-capital, like I said, is going to be focused on that, that post-capitalist analysis. And what that means is theory, praxis, discussion, all these things around anarchist principles and building a world beyond capitalism, building a world outside of what we understand currently, challenging our current you know, status quo. So, um, as important as it is to fight the fash, I believe that the government would much rather have us fighting the fash than fighting it directly. And by that, I mean challenging it on, on new forms of economy that could arise, new forms of, of, of things that could really challenge the current status quo. And so welcome, welcome to the post-capital. I'll update you when we have a site running. If you'd like to support the work, we'll definitely have a donation link or some kind of way that you can help support people doing leftist journalism. But we'll go ahead and start on today's topic, which, uh, you know, we'll call it, we'll call it the economy of hate, the, the profit incentive to hate. Let's just discuss that in general. And I want to begin by asking you two questions, two questions that I want you to reflect on throughout this podcast. Number one, with the current backlash against the right wing, against extreme conspiracists and online extremists, and, you know, this, this specifically stems from the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, why are certain people who incite violence still allowed to exist in the public realm? And when I mean that, of course, I'm talking about Andy Nell. 
And we're going to talk about Andy now. We're really going to talk about Andy now. So first, that question. And the second question, which is, you know, the, the theme of this podcast episode, that is. Uh, the second question to you is, is there a profit incentive to hate? Is there a profit incentive to media companies allowing the proliferation of hate on their platform of extremism, blah, blah, blah? Think about it for a second, but we'll go ahead and discuss it in today's episode of The Post Capital. Welcome. To the first question, it really has to do with Andy No, You know. You know, this relates a lot to the reason that I took a social media break and a mental health break. Because Andy No decided to dox me. Andy No decides to dox people all the time. Leftists who fight for human rights, who face police repression. Often he'll do it based off of some shitty fucking police report where they're not even telling the truth. But Andy No, specifically, after September 4th, 2021, first of all, will comment on the fact that he was very much tracking the events of that day. Everybody on the right wing was well aware of what was going to happen, which is that the Proud Boys were going to go into downtown and they were going to hunt their opposition, or at the very least, they expected extreme violence over a counter-protest to the fascists. So, as a part of that, Andy No, you know, he's somebody who has very much been documented, uh, you know, uh, flirting with and working with extremist hate groups, particularly Patriot Prayer. That was that was his big start. Now it's the Proud Boys. So, because of what happened on September 4th, and a lot of the misinformation he spread, and the fact that he kept focusing it back to me as a journalist, I faced an enormous amount of death threats, an enormous amount of threats to the people that I love, of people going, there was somebody who left a poster outside my house, these different things that happened where it got very intense for a moment and I needed that break. And so as a part of that, you know, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to digress and go on about myself. Luckily, I'm, I'm okay and, you know, people I love are okay. But at the end of the day, Andy No has a repeated history of doing this. He'll make extremely, uh, you know, blown out of proportion claims. He'll make false claims about a person in fact, if you look at the post-millennial, which I want to, I want to go ahead and say the post-capital is very much a contradiction to the post-millennial. But if you look at the post-millennial, there are, you know, there's a number of articles, a few about me, that I can tell you multiple things in there where they are lying. They're not spreading the truth. It's him and Katie Davis Court. Of course, of course, our old enemies from Antifa News, but we don't need to go on about them. We just need to ask ourselves, why are they still given a platform? They incite violence. They get their followers to make direct threats. They don't, you know, they'll say they don't do it on purpose, but with some of the things that Andy No specifically puts out, you can't help but think he wants somebody to suffer for this. Particularly, Andy No's been a, a bit of a, a Twitter debacle recently. Oh, God. So, for those of you that aren't aware, there's this great journalist out of L.A. who... Uh, you know, he's, he's obviously a pro-human rights, a leftist, anti-fascist journalist. Uh, his name is Chad Loader. You can follow him on Twitter. It's at Chad Loader, uh, spelled L-O-D-E-R. Chad is somebody that I very much respect for the work that he's doing to hold insurrectionists in his community accountable. 
LA has been the forefront of a lot of right-wing activism led by some of these insurrectionists from January 6th. And as a result of that, he's been facing some very real threats. Um, it started with him being served a notice over some claim that was completely dismissed in court that Andy No. Andy No retweeted a video, and, and not even retweeted, he posted a video that the person that served the warrant, let me correct that, not the warrant, the, uh, the, the court order. They served the court order to Chad, said, you've been served, showed the inside of his house, and it also noted the fact that he recently had to turn in his gun as a part of a condition of release. You know, that, as a part of that, Chad Loader got blown up with a lot of threats that were very public. That's, you know, a lot of these things, people want to be like, oh, you're getting threats, you shouldn't, you should just ignore them, blah, blah, blah. These aren't threats that are even direct messaged. These are threats that are made out in the public discourse on Twitter that, that Jack Dorsey somehow just doesn't see. But, you know, Chad Loader had this whole experience where because he was unarmed for a bit and somebody had seen the inside of his home, they, they were like, hey, we're going to show up. And of course, Chad uh, did a very good job of standing up and being like, this is uh, not okay. And so as a part of that, Andy No has been very, very angry at Chad. And Andy, the liar and grifter that he is, decided to... Uh, Take him down, and by that I mean get his account suspended because of a claim of a copyright violation. Basically, Andy No, I don't know if he's still in Poland, but he went to Poland for a little bit with the Polish American Brotherhood, who was there on August 22nd in Portland. These are all a lot of events that I'm giving you that if you're an anti-fascist, you can very much track them, or if you follow my work, you can track them, but you may have to do a bit of digging. Just look up Summer of Love Portland. <laughs> it was a day that descended into a shooting in downtown by a white supremacist against anti-fascists, and people defended themselves, and turned into the Proud Boys flipping over a van that they thought was Antifa. So all these things, you know, they coalesced into this issue where, essentially, yes, uh, Polish-American Brotherhood, Lost my train of thought right there. So uh, Polish-American Brotherhood was there, one of the core organizers to this whole Summer of Love Portland thing. And the funny thing is, there's now a picture out there from like two weeks ago of Andy No going to Portland, posing with her. And now, you know, the, the latest debacle is that over the weekend, Andy No put out a photo of himself in front of an Antifa tag, being like, it's from this militant Antifa group, and it's their Iron Front logo. And the hilarious part, the hilarious part, is that Andy No very much is standing in front of a fascist symbol, you know, that's covering the Antifa symbol. So it's he's pointing out the, the word Antifa on the wall as right in the right-hand corner. You can see the, the group Falanga, which is a Polish group that you know, it's an anti-Semitic group that has committed a lot of violence against Jewish people in their communities. So anyway. Chad Loader reposts this, and he's like, hey, look at this. This is a very fascist symbol, and this is actually anti-Antifa graffiti. It seems like you're very much twisting the situation in hand, Andy. Do you do that? Do you just lie about, like, what's right behind you? And, of course, Andy, uh, Andy has found a new tool that he's loving to use. It's the DMCA violation. Basically, this is a specific you know, uh, proportion for, it. basically he's trying to file a copyright violation about 
the photo, trying to say that it can't be shared in a public platform, even though he shared it publicly on Twitter. It, I mean, everybody reshares his shit. So he got his account suspended for a few days, Chad did, that is, by Andy's followers. Like, he, he reported him, and then mass, like everybody mass reported. Because that's what he does. He's six people on leftists that he doesn't like. And essentially, he got, yeah, he got Chad Loader's account suspended. And then Chad got back on in three days and was like, hey, fuck you, man. Like, this is not the way it's going to work. And Chad has been a pretty doing a pretty good job of decentivizing the post-millennial. So there we go, you know. Andy No. Like, people people know about Andy No. And if you don't know about Andy No, and I honestly should have done this at the beginning of this little diatribe, but Andy No started in Portland and basically is just an anti-anti-fascist journalist. That's called a fascist. So anyway, this, this anti-anti-fascist journalist is uh, very much a problem because things are not going well. Things are not going well. You know, there's a lot of leftists that are facing direct threats and, you know, not feeling safe in their homes because of the work that Andy is doing to expose them as opposed to actual white supremacists. And in fact, he's doing it on the ha on behalf of and in favor of white supremacists. And sort of that question, I think the first the first thing we should ask is, why does Andy know still have a place in public discourse? What is it? He's got 894,000 followers. There's a lot of leftists that have equaling amounts or a bit lesser or a bit more, you know, they're all over the place. But why does Andy Ngo still have that public platform? Particularly when his work is very much known to incite violence against me, against other journalists, against uh, teachers. Like, the, you know, he put out this whole article about this teacher that was trying to teach their kids about human rights and a little bit about anti-fascism. So he put out an Antifa flag in his room. You know, um, put out a Black Lives Matter one, an American flag. And basically, I, I, I watch Andy know, you know, to track what he's doing. And I will often see how, like, right from his tweets, it goes into, obviously, the post-millennial, his dumb little website that he creates just to, just to spread propaganda. And that's far-right propaganda. That is, far-left propaganda is cool. But far-right propaganda... It'll go from there into the networks of the local extremists and local extreme right wing that I follow on social media. I'll track different pages. We don't need to name them. We don't need to name them. But essentially, you know, it's, it's this, this cross-pollination of, of the networks. And so Andy No, you know, he'll incite violence against people. I'll see comments or just like, we should do something when I say do something, I'm obviously cutting out the part where, like, I see a lot of things being like, hey, that person shouldn't be alive, and we should run them over and shit like that. You know, it's not good. But, you know, the best thing that I saw was before he got suspended, everybody knows about the Facebook outage. That, went out, that was about a week and a half ago. Facebook and Instagram, WhatsApp, all their platforms were out for about six hours nationwide internationally actually and that was a big thing i mean people people felt pretty disconnected i did too no um basically <laughs> chad loader had discovered i don't know if it was a joke or not on this but he discovered that the name facebook.com the domain was for sale <laughs> and he he made this little post that was just like oh looks like it's it's up for sale jack dorsey the founder of twitter retweeted this 
retweeted Chad's post and was like, how much? Which is a pretty funny response from a CEO of, of a major you know, corporation. However, Chad Loader then immediately changed his name to Jack Let's, uh, Jack Let's Nazis Target My Family. So <laughs> he just changed his name to that. And that was, that was brilliant because it stayed up on Jack's platform for a while. And everybody was just like, wow, how was he just not, not picking up on the fact we put it to this? Which goes into our second question. You know, is there an incentive to Jack Dorsey specifically or Twitter in general to allowing Andy No to have a platform? We'll go into that part next. Do I have an answer? I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for anything. Nothing is definite in life. I have my pretty good inclination, which I'll explain throughout this next portion. But ask yourself, you know, allowing allowing hate to fester online, is there a profit incentive to that? So, first off, I just want to go ahead and talk about a specific case study. Very large case study as well. So, I'm about to spoil something for you a little bit. I'm just going to fully spoil it, because it shouldn't be news at this point, and I feel like it's news everybody should know. All right? So, question. Have you seen Q, Into the Storm, an HBO documentary? Or a documentary series, that is. If you haven't, I encourage everybody to check it out. Very excellent. Very excellent reporting. It tracks a journalist who basically embedded himself with a few key figures to what was being seen as a QAnon movement. And he tracked people for three years, you know, conversing with them, like seeing their change over the Trump administration, seeing their change as things came to a head in January 6th, on January 6th, 2021. You know, very big day. The attempted national coup d'etat. He, he spent his time, like, not aligning with these people, but doing a case study on them, talking to them. His purpose was to discover the identity of QAnon. QAnon, of course, is that extreme right-wing conspiracy theory that's based off of an old Nazi tropes, anti-Semitic tropes, you know, basically alleging that all Democrats are involved in a cabal of sex trafficking minors and eating children, blah, blah, blah. Very extreme stuff. So he decided that he wanted to try to find the creator of this. And what I'll say, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you. What I'll say is I'm very much of the opinion that he draws at the conclusion of the show, and it was a little bit of a slip of the tongue by the, one of the people that he was interviewing. He spent a lot of time with the creators of 8chan, those who you know brought it to what it is today or what it was. 8chan was basically the worst version, the dark web, of 4chan. If 4chan wasn't edgy enough for you, which was pretty fucking gross, uh, go to 8chan. That's where a lot of people felt like it was this idea of like free speech, of the web, of interconnectedness, saying whatever the fuck you want. And things didn't go well, you know? Um, basically, QAnon got onto the 8chan platform, and that's how he was putting out his messages. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of calls for, well, I mean, a lot of moderation. There was a lot of calls for moderation. Because that was HN's specialty, is the fact that they didn't censor anybody, anybody, no matter what they said, no matter what they chose to do after the actions. 
that's the biggest part. There are multiple shootings that were inspired off of, and I, I don't even mean inspired. They were planned on HN. They were announced on HN. They were live streamed via Facebook, then you know linked to HN. And so he would track like these these men, and particularly he he knew, got to know the Fred, who was the creator of HN, and then he got to know Ron and Jim Watkins. Now Ron is the son of Jim. And Ron and Jim Watkins took over HN and basically, you know, made it into the profitable thing that it was in its time. They uh, they allowed hate and other things to fester. And basically, the conclusion that he drew at the end of the show was that it was uh, Ron Watkins, the son of Jim, who was QAnon. The reason he concluded this was, you know, there was, there was a lot about the change in tone that was more of, you know, what Ron would put out one, you know, once uh, he got the QAnon, the original creator, if there was one even, it could have been a, a sigh out from the beginning. But basically, there was a moment where they switched over platforms. And during that time, they believe that Ron Watkins pretty much just took over and became QAnon, started inspiring this. And why would he do that? Why would he spread all these conspiracy theories on a website that, you know, uh, the majority of rational people with a fucking soul pretty much avoid because of what was on there, because of the extreme political positions about, you know, the Nazis advocating for genocide and killing other people. Why would he do that? Well, it's the same reason his website exists in the first place. It's that it's that, you know, it was the bastion of free speech to some people. It was the place where free speech was a concept that was not even challenged. You know, free speech overrode everything. And that's what that's what I think is an important thing to note, is that there was very much a profit incentive to Ron Watkins not only becoming, but entertaining QAnon in the first place. It's the idea that QAnon was very much bringing traction to their website, was making it a big national talking point as well, which would draw in even more visitors. So, you know, that's one specific case study. And of course, that's the extreme. HN is kind of the extreme. Now let's talk, let's talk about Twitter. Let's talk about Facebook. Let's talk about Instagram. These different platforms. First off, I want to say as much as I don't like I'm on Instagram, right? But I'm not a fan of the extreme moderation to the point that sometimes I'm shadow banned for the fact that I'm putting out things they don't want you to know. Not advocating for violence or anything, just extremist political points that basically because they're anti-capitalist, because they're anti-status quo, we get shadow banned. But at the very least, they don't allow for the like open calls for murdering people and genocide on their platforms. It's pretty much, uh, it's wound down ever since the, well, the attempted insurrection on January 6th. That was basically kind of the turning point where a lot of social media companies, Reddit, Band, R slash the Donald, all these different social media companies began to completely remove these extremist group, groups. But, you know, there's a lot of people that want to comment, well, you know, too little, too late. Too little, too late. And that's very much a thing to think about. Why in the world? Do they entertain such extremists for so long? Is there a profit incentive? Well, um, I, I, the point I was trying to make, too, was that Twitter, for as much as I don't like Facebook and Instagram as a platform for Zuckerberg, blah, 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 
at the very least, they're trying to moderate. Jack Dorsey has a very hands-off approach, even though he's banned the president and tons of people after January 6th. There's still an entire cesspool of the extreme right wing that is advocating for violence and other things because of mask mandates, because of vaccine mandates, because of their hatred against the left. Do you get where I'm getting at? And so the question is, you know, uh, January 6th, what most people know and discuss is the fact that it was it was plotted online. Facebook, Instagram did a pretty good job of starting to ban some of these things leading up to this time. You know, they were starting to challenge these political extremist points of, oh, the election was rigged. But at the same time, it was very much something where they allowed these things to fester for so long where it became the attempted coup d'etat that it was. And so what led to that? I would like to turn you on to a book that I have read in the last month. Uh, actually, I just finished it last week. It's called Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. It's by Andrew Marantz. Andrew did an amazing job in this book. Basically, throughout the, you know, leading up to the 2016 election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, he implemented himself amongst extreme right-wingers and with techno-utopians. We'll discuss that term in a second, but, you know, he learned a lot and taught me a lot about the extreme right-wing, about some of the points that they advocate for, blah, blah, blah. But he has an extreme... Uh, an extremely beneficial critique of techno-utopians and how they led to the hijacking of the American conversation. That is that, you know, when a lot of these social media companies were created, they were created by young kids that knew how to code. You know, college kids, young white guys who had a little bit of venture capital. They, they had some capital to start off of. And Essentially, you know, with, with the help of their own coding or the coding that they paid somebody for, they were able to create platforms that would begin to gain traction, um, create websites that were all about the virality of what you're putting out, about getting it viral. And these techno-utopians, their, their, thought, their thoughts from the beginning were that free speech needs to be enshrined, and they had the opportunity to do that through their work. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's the notion of gatekeepers. They had seen how in the last, well, since, you know, since the advent of the printing press, there has been gatekeepers to knowledge that we all can access. There's been gatekeepers. That's usually journalists. It's usually the media. It's usually anchors on CNN, blah, blah, blah. It's people picking out the facts that, you know, you need to know and they feel is pertinent to our situation at hand. It's media companies refusing to publish something if it falls outside of what they would, what they would like you to know. But that's the difference is, you know, there's a very conspiratorial wave among the right wing where they believe the media is evil inherently because they either put out things that are, are false, but they're not false or are against them, but they're not against them. They're just twisting things no matter what. But gatekeepers, nobody likes a gatekeeper. And these techno-utopians, the people that created these social media platforms, were incentivized by the idea that they could create a techno-utopia, a place of complete freedom online. They believe things like the Arab Spring could happen over and over and over, but they never saw the extreme dark side to it. 
which is that as great as the Arab Spring was, it could lead to January 6th on American soil. It could lead to other incidents of terror that it already has. Live-streamed events that are horrible. But they chose to deny this. And why would they choose to deny this? Now, that's the real question. Why in the world would they choose to allow this hate to fester? Well, you know, to that end, to them at that time, there was very much a profit incentive, which is that as they were creating these platforms, it was the idea of uh, networking the world, not necessarily controlling information, and thus being seen as a space where people could have their free speech. And there was a profit incentive to that because so many people signed on to be able to join communities where they found people who said the same things that they did, right? But again, you know, it's that question of them weighing out what could happen if it continued unabated. So Antisocial is a book that I encourage you to check out. Again, Antisocial, it's called Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation by Andrew Moratz. It is a New York Times uh, book review, 100 Notable Books 2019. I guess that's not that big of an award, but it's good. It's very well written. Now... What does this lead us back to? Why does Jack Dorsey allow these Nazis to continue having a platform on Twitter? Well, you know, it is the idea that free speech and the notion of free speech can very much have a profit incentive. And when I say free speech, I of course mean hate speech. There's a lot of people that don't want to separate the two. I do for the fact that hate speech incites violence. And so why would violence that incites, or let me correct that, uh, speech that incites violence be allowed on these platforms? Well, it's that whole notion that you can have this platform. You can have your cake and eat it too. You know, that's how people like to put it, that you can have all this free speech, but not have to worry about the consequences on your plate. You do. You do. And that's where Jack Dorsey should very much ban Andy No, you know. But. Furthermore, I want to talk about what that profit incentive exactly looks like. Because, you know, that's a big question, too. You can have a lot of people cut out from your site because you're allowing hate to fester. So how in the world do they justify this? Well, first of all, you know, they have access to technology that not all of us have. Starting capital that not all of us have, where they're kind of protected from the jump. You know, they were creating a social media platform that people are enjoying Sometimes it is kind of like 8chan, like Reddit was at the beginning of its days. Uh, very much a, that, that notion that edgy humor can exist on this section of the platform, or this section of the internet on a platform. And your platform would be rewarded, especially for the fact that you're allowing this to happen, allowing this hate to fester, allowing for these calls of violence. Obviously, things have started to turn. Um, and I would say, again, January 6, 2021 is a very large part of that. And of course, you know, I'm not going to look at that and be like, oh, well, that means everything's solved, because obviously, since January 6, 2021, there's also been a lot more censorship against the left for the idea that the very notion of extremism is what's the problem, instead of fascism being the problem. But from the beginning, there was very much an incentive to allowing this sort of thing to happen. And it was the, the idea that they were creating these online extreme extremely new worlds, these new platforms where they could, you know, not inhibit free speech. And a lot of people, Mark Zuckerberg, 
for example, genuinely thought that it was going to just be a good thing, particularly for opening people up to other things they didn't know. And of course, that's, that's obviously the separation, is that there are some people that from the beginning would very much you know, uh, when they when they want to open their minds, they'll study more leftist thought, more socialist ideas, more human rights, things like that. But then there's also other people that would go into the edgy, dark side of the Internet. There's actually an excellent quote in Antisocial by Andrew Morantz in which he discusses the, you know, a brief history of the Internet. And he talks about how from the very beginning, there were neo-Nazi websites, there were neo-fascist websites there were websites you know hating on people for their body shape or for their skin color for their gender their race all these different ideas and it became a battle from the beginning as to which was going to win out luckily in certain platforms you know there are certain things that aren't accepted anymore like nazism but reddit allowed things to fester for so long and and what's interesting too is that he points to a lot of real-world events. I mean, that's kind of what's so shitty about the situation we have at hand, which is that it often takes them getting to a certain point and killing somebody over their rhetoric for us to acknowledge that the rhetoric is the problem. It's what happened with Charlottesville. Antisocial in this book, and also another book that I read over the over the time I've had this break, Everything You Love Will Burn by Vegas Tenold. I'd absolutely absolutely encourage people to read it. But that's why Charlottesville is such a fixture of all these discussions. Because once Charlottesville happened, and once Heather Heyer was murdered by a white supremacist, basically, uh, there was a big national reckoning. Our president basically gave them a dog whistle, while other people began to question, hold on, is it this extreme free speech that we have? Is it the fact that we're allowing this to fester? Is it allowing this we're allowing this to grow, to continue, this rhetoric? And so Reddit, for example, banned a ton of websites about a month later, or subreddits rather, about a month later. Facebook started just mass removing groups that were op openly organizing these things. But there you go. You know, it only it took the fact that people started to take a dark dark turn against these social media platforms for them to decide that, okay, we should probably change instead of doing it for the good of society. And that's capitalism. Obviously, that's capitalism. You know, maybe I just wrapped up the entirety of the show just saying that. No, of course not. Um, it's capitalism. It's the, it's the idea that, you know, as long as you make that profit incentive, it doesn't matter what you hurt. But then... You know, the next question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we resolve that? And we'll discuss that in a couple couple minutes. But back to the matter at hand. Why doesn't Jack Dorsey ban Andy No from his platform? Obviously, obviously it's the capitalism. Obviously, it's the fact that Andy No does have 854,000 followers. Whoopie doo! Might be 890. It is 894. So, you know, he's shy of 1 million followers. That's a lot of people that pay attention to his platform and the things that he's putting out and believe in everything that he says. And whether or not it's true, it's bringing revenue to Jack Dorsey's pockets. It's bringing revenue to Twitter. It's creating this whole online web where people 
people that would have a hard time engaging in other platforms because of such rhetoric are, are being given more of an open space on Twitter. How do we fix that? Where do we go from here? I don't have these answers for you. I wish that I did. I wish that I did. You know, um, I think Twitter needs to have a reckoning. I think Twitter needs to be held to account for the fact that there are so many leftist journalists. I'm not the only one. There's Alyssa Azar, a friend of mine. There's, you know, Melissa Claudia Lewis. So many other leftist journalists who face extreme threats and violence because of the work that they do. Because I do want to address that. A lot of people think that it's just threats, but it's not. You know, these people are making threats that eventually turn into action. Look at what's happening. Sorry, let me correct that. Look at what happened to Alyssa Azar on September 4th, 2021. On the same day that Tiny Tosa led an entire mob of Proud Boys into downtown to hunt anti-fascists in Olympia. That same day, she was physically and sexually assaulted by people that had been radicalized by Andy No and others on Twitter who had doxxed her and tried to make her a target. And they made her into a target to the point that they dragged her by the hair and bare maced her in the face. I have faced physical violence as well because of what people have put on Twitter. It hasn't been a while. I mean, it's been a while. It hasn't hasn't been recent. But, but that extreme violence, you know, it's not, it's not just rhetoric. It doesn't just exist on this social media platform that cannot be acted upon. Ah, so... That's, that's where we're at, you know? How do we resolve this? How do we even hold Twitter to account? Back in the day, it used to be easy. Back in the day, you could very much, you know, t t do a massive boycott and get people to abandon such a product and help them make, or have them make real decisions, hold them to account. Unfortunately, we live in a social media age where we have overlords who pretty much don't even need our money at this point. Like, they're set. They'll be able to continue running the platform if they want, that profit margin. So yeah, yeah, just call out bigotry and hatred when you see it and report it because it's really not welcome because it's leading to a lot of people being hunted. It's not good. So yeah, in short, we'll get back to the point. The two questions we asked again, you know, number one, why isn't Andy No banned from Twitter? Well, it's just like I explained. He does have such a social media presence and a following of, of people that would abandon the platform if they banned somebody like him that it's hard for Jack Dorsey to make that decision, you know? He didn't struggle with it for Trump. Actually, he did. That's kind of a thing, you know? Once, uh, once Trump started putting out, like, false claims about the election, obviously he kept earmarking the posts, being like, this tweet contains false information. Which was pretty hands-off, honestly, because those who believe that it's false information will look at that and know it's false information, and those who, those who are questioning aren't going to just tw trust Twitter off of this, because that's exactly the rhetoric that Trump was spinning, that it doesn't matter what the social media companies, what media, what journalists, what scientists tell you, you know, he's very much the, the end-all, be-all to authority. So Jack Dorsey, I'll basically, you know, I'll conclude with the idea that all of these social media giants, these uh, these tycoons, these robber barons, is what I, that's what we should call them, robber barons. 
because of the notion that they are very much responsible. They have blood on their hands. Now, obviously, we're not going to say that to every case, because people are radicalized, you know, not just on social media. They're radicalized through their upbringing, through books that they read. If you read Mein Kampf, you're probably, and you read it in earnest, you're probably not going to like Jews too much. That type of thing, right? People get radicalized through different means, but there are specific platforms that are responsible for specific acts of extremism. And what I would say is that Reddit and 8chan, or 4chan, are responsible for Charlottesville. We'll say that Facebook and Twitter had a part in allowing January 6th to happen. However, most of the real plotting was done on Parler. And so that's another, you know, that's another case study that we should probably look at real quick, which is, why was Parler allowed to exist for so long? That one didn't even really have a profit incentive. That was a pretty defunct website that only had extreme right-wingers on there and didn't have any type of moderation. In fact, after January 6, 2021, Apple gave Parler about 24 hours, was it? Yeah, 24 hours to come up with some moderating guidelines, like some rules that they, that they had. And Parler was just like, nah, we're all about free speech. So they just shut them down. They're not allowing them to access them on their app store anymore. Same thing with Google. Google did a pretty similar thing, which was you know, come up with some regulations or you're gone. But again, why did they wait so long? That's always the question. That's always the, the whole notion, which is there. there's real blood on the hands of the people that refuse to do anything in the face of online rampant radicalization. It's like if ISIS had a chapter in the United States and they, they were radicalizing on Facebook, and there was an incident of terror based off of that, you can't help but blame Facebook for, for allowing a person to encounter this on their platform. And of course, this is going to be a whole different discussion in the future, but ISIS is very heavily regulated. You know, there are, there are some acts of terror and extremist terror groups that are very heavily monitored on social media but guess what guess what they're always the ones from brown countries they're the middle eastern they're the you know the the extremist extremist muslim groups that's who facebook does a pretty good job of going after but of course domestic terror is different why is that it's because they're white we'll discuss that in the future of course future episodes you know we're building a lot off of this different articles but to sum it up, to sum it up, it's pretty clear. Andy No needs to be banned off of Twitter. And there's very much a profit incentive to hate. But we need to move to a world that doesn't have that anymore. I ha I mean, I, I would like to say I don't have the answer. But obviously the answer is based off of what this, this, what this whole series is going to be called. The post-capital. Post-capitalism. Capitalism is what creates a profit incentive to extreme hate. So once we remove that, we can start to reimagine a world where people aren't making that extreme profit based off of the viewers that they have if they're extremists. Uh, imagine a new world. It'd be really nice if people could get online without just like being like, I'm going to fucking show up at your house and kill you. So yeah, thanks for listening, comrades.
Well, comrades, I very much appreciate you bearing with me through that. You know, that was a lot. Thank you for listening to the Post Capital. I'm your host, Miguel, allegedly. Again, this is going to be your new home for a post-capitalist analysis of the news and a call for abolition in our times. Yeah. If you're somebody that wants to contribute to this website, to this podcast, to, you know, creating news that is very focused on human rights, on leftist activism, on a post-capitalist view of the world beyond beyond this capitalist hellhole we have, please feel free to message me or uh, whatever we, you know, set up as the contact for this. But yeah, feel free to message us and we would love to absolutely get you on. You know, we encourage participation, artwork, zines, whatever you want to do to help contribute. Very much appreciated because this is something that is going to help a lot of us to consider reimagining the world that we're in. And that's where we're, that's where we're at. You know, we need to build a new world out of the ashes. Now, this last year, there are there's a lot of change coming and it needs to happen. Otherwise, we do not have much longer left. And so, yeah, thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Miguel, allegedly. We'll introduce our new co-host next week and stay tuned for whatever website we build. All of that. Boom. Thanks for listening to The Post Capital. Have a good night.